On this episode of A New York Minute in History, She said, I read this article, and it's about a freed slave who fought in the revolution, and he settled in Kaznovia, and I think we should do the research to get a Pomeroy marker for him. We tell the story of Plymouth Freeman, a black patriot who served in the Continental Army during the American Revolution, and discuss how disenfranchised communities have continued to fight to achieve the ideals of freedom and equality outlined in the Declaration of Independence. It's all up next, right after this. From the Irish invasion of Canada to the early days of the movies, if you are interested in broadening your understanding of New York State history, then this is the podcast for you. I'm Susan Hughes, historian and archivist for the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, a proud sponsor of a New York Minute in History. The Pomeroy Foundation is a philanthropic organization based in Syracuse, New York. One of our main initiatives is to help people celebrate their community's history by providing grants for historic markers and plaques. Here in the Empire State and across the country, we support a diverse range of marker programs that include commemorating food history, civil rights, folklore, and sites on the National Register of Historic Places. As the nation's leading funder of historic markers, the Pomeroy Foundation has awarded over 1,800 grants since 2005. To learn more about the Foundation's grant programs, visit WGPFoundation.org. That's WGPFoundation.org. Welcome to a New York Minute in History. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State Historian. And I'm Lauren Roberts, the historian for Saratoga County. On this episode, we're focusing on a historic marker located on Putnam Road in the town of Nelson, which is part of Madison County. The title of the marker is Plymouth Freeman, and the text reads, Plymouth Freeman, Black Patriot awarded Badge of Merit for six years' service with 3rd Connecticut Regiment in Revolutionary War. Lived near here circa 1800 to 1829. William G. Pomeroy Foundation, 2021. So we're going to be talking about the story of Plymouth Freeman. Plymouth Freeman was a Black man from Connecticut who, as the sign says, served for six years in the American Revolution. He enlisted in Windsor, Connecticut in 1777 and served until he was discharged at the end of the war in 1783 at West Point. Although we don't have a record that points to this, it appears as though he may have been an enslaved man and that he may have been serving as a substitute for either the person who enslaved him or someone else. It's not clear yet what the records are. We spoke with Donna Wassel and Karen Christensen from the Fayetteville Owagina Daughters of the American Revolution chapter to learn more about the research that they've done on Plymouth Freeman. My name is Donna Wassel, and um, currently I'm the regent of the Fayetteville Owagina chapter, DAR, New York State Society, and I became interested in the organization after finding out that my great-grandmother had been a member of the DAR in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. I myself have only been a member uh, for six years. My name is Karen Christensen, and I've been for 31 years a member of the Fayetteville DAR chapter. I became interested when my mother and I went to her cousin in Virginia and found our nine times great-grandfather's headstone, and it said Sergeant in the Revolutionary War on it. I was researching 
of the history of the house in Kansanovia for a friend and saying, you know, who owned what, when, where, and all that as a housewarming gift. And I came across this article about Plymouth Freeman. And from there, it just kind of escalated. I thought it was very cool that there was a Casanova patriot of color, a free man of color, back way back during the Revolutionary War. So that's what got me interested in it. I called Donna, and of course, she's the most curious person on earth. And um, <laughs> and and we started to research it together. We were actually I, I have a very vivid recollection of this whole conversation. Uh, it was following one of our chapter meetings and she approached me and she said, I read this article and it's about a, a freed slave who fought in the revolution and he settled in, in Casanova and I think we should do the research to get a Pomeroy marker for him, <laughs> is exactly how that went. So reading the article just opened up a whole world of unanswered questions and, and that's when we really uh, started to dig in some of his history that was in the article was vague and some of it was sounded like it could have been lore or legend and we weren't quite sure so uh, i made a list of questions and then we started from there the first place i went was ancestry we had seen copies of plymouth's discharge papers from the military and i started searching plymouth freeman on ancestry and all i could come up with were his discharge papers. I couldn't find any information about him prior to 1782. I said, well, we, we know he served. He's got to have muster records. That They have to be out there somewhere. I started searching Plymouth with no last name, Plymouth African-American. And finally, I searched Plymouth Negro and all kinds of wonderful records appeared. So he had enlisted under the name Plymouth Negro, and up until 1782, all of his military records were under the name of Plymouth Negro. So that was, it was like hitting the mother load, I thought, when, when I started seeing all that information. Karen and I, uh, Karen looked and we could never, she looked hard and could not find manumission records for Plymouth. That's one of the reasons uh, on the Pomeroy marker, we could not put former slave, uh, even though we believe he was, but we couldn't put that because we didn't have the documentation to prove uh, that he had been manumitted. So, you know, it, it's probably most of common knowledge now that oftentimes enslaved persons would be substituted for their owners, sometimes with the promise of you serve in my place and you will, you know, you'll get your freedom. And I knew that Plymouth's enlistment date on his muster records was dated May 26, 1777. And I went through these books and found an enlistment record from May 26, 1777 but it wasn't Plymouth's name, it was another local citizen's name. And then a few entries down in the same book was another entry that said that this man who had enlisted had paid 30 pounds to substitute a, a black man in his place. One of the questions that still needs to be answered is, was this the guy 
that did he in fact uh, substitute Plymouth for himself or is there some other way this whole thing went about but it's interesting that the dates line up and that they refer to an unnamed Negro man who took his place. The legend or the lore that was going around and being published about Plymouth said that, you know, he was a former slave, son of a king in Guinea, Africa, and that he had served in the revolution as a cook to General Washington. And that intrigued me. And when I started finding his muster records dating back to 1777 when he enlisted, he was a servant to a general, but it wasn't General Washington. He served almost the entire duration of his enlistment as a waiter to General Jedediah Huntington out of Norwich, Connecticut. That might seem like it's a letdown because, oh, it's not General Washington, but once I started researching General Huntington and his contributions and participation in, in the conflict, Plymouth's life just, it must have been fascinating. And the things he would have seen and been exposed to as a waiter to General Huntington kind of still blows my mind when I think about it. Throughout those six years of service, he saw some pretty incredible historic moments, starting with Valley Forge, going through Monmouth, the mention of some really important trials, uh, including Charles Lee and Major Andre. These are, are things that we learn about in basic American history. So to know that that Plymouth Freeman was part of all of these events or was at least present at all of these events is really a remarkable past to have. And we know about these things through the research of pension papers, through muster rolls. We're able to kind of follow Plymouth Freeman's service through these major events. These muster records are pretty thorough. Um, I was able to get most all of them for the whole six years. And it's pretty detailed about where they went. It would say, you know, Plymouth Negro on command with General Huntington, Fairfield, Connecticut, or at West Point. You know, it would say exactly where they were. So some of the assignments that he was on with General Huntington was the Valley Forge encampment. In the spring of 1778, the both of them left for commission on the losses of Fort Montgomery and Clinton. In June 1778, they were at Monmouth during General Lee's retreat. Also in the summer, General Huntington was assigned to the court-martial of General Charles Lee. In the fall of 1780, General Huntington was assigned to be at the trial and hanging of Major John Andre, the accomplice to Benedict Arnold. So I looked up also besides finding out that the, according to the general's orders, was that all men, including the servants and the waiters, be trained in military drill and able to bear arms. The other thing it says is essentially they were like, I hate to use the word a man in waiting, but they were like a personal valet uh, servant. They were at their beck and call. And everywhere that officer went, their man went with them. I think with that, it's safe to assume that Plymouth was with the general on all of those assignments that Huntington was on. And that said, going back to the legend about Plymouth being a cook to General Washington, General Huntington was a, a close confidant and comrade of, of General George Washington. They were friends before the war. So it is absolutely very possible that at some point Plymouth Freeman did either 
cook for or wait on General George Washington. You may be wondering if Black men were integrated in the Continental Army during the American Revolution. And in fact, they were. And that's something that wouldn't happen again in the American Army until the Korean War. Yeah, and that's an interesting point. And it brings up some interesting questions about someone like Plymouth Freeman or any African-American who served in the, the Revolutionary War. They were essentially serving on behalf of a country that would become a country that was a slave country. Now, some of these people were free blacks. They were already freed. And some, as we noted, with the possibility with Plymouth Freeman that they would have been enslaved when they enlisted and could have been a substitute for someone else. So it brings up some interesting questions about the ideals of the American Revolution and the language that was used by the the people like Thomas Jefferson and the quote-unquote founding fathers of the nation with regards to liberty, with regards to freedom. And it also raises some interesting questions about why someone would choose to serve the American side as opposed to the British side, who were offering enslaved African Americans freedom if they came and served for them. Karen and Donna planned the dedication of the marker so that it was exactly 239 years to the day that Plymouth Freeman was discharged from service. And they were able to get a pretty great turnout for one of these events. There was a book written in the 1800s by a reverend, W.W. Crane, grew up in the town of Nelson, and he wrote a book about his childhood. And he makes reference in his book to being friends with this boy nicknamed Black Jerry. And Black Jerry was Jeremiah Freeman, who was Plymouth's son. And in his book, he makes reference to uh, Black Jerry would always tell him how his dad, you know, had been a slave and served in the revolution and waited on George Washington and all these things. So between where I know that the Reverend Crane lived as a child and what the town of Nelson historian is able to put together, we were able to pinpoint within a short distance where Plymouth would have lived. But so he was he was right in the Casanova Nelson area until probably, you know, not long before his death. We do not know where he's buried. That's Karen's burning desire to try to figure out where his remains lie, I, I don't know. Other people have looked, they've been looking for 200 years to find where he is. The day of the marker dedication, it's on a little secondary side road right off Route 20 in the town of Nelson uh, on some guy's front lawn because <laughs> he was gracious enough to let us put it there. We put a lot of press out before the marker dedication. And I would say we had probably 70 people at this thing. We had history teachers from the local school. We had some local dignitaries. The president general of the Daughters of the American Revolution showed up. It was amazing. And there were some people that had heard the story and there were others who had never heard of it. And then there were others that were so grateful that a person of color was honored in this way for fighting the revolution. And we had a follow-up article that went out after, and the woman for the local news who did the article, I think it was a two-page spread. It wasn't just like, Daughters of the American Revolution host a marker. It was, it was his entire history, right off the biography that we had read at the, at the ceremony. 
I think yes, of course, Karen, I'm sure. And I know I, every chance I get to talk about it, I talk about it because um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating story. It really is. And I mean, Plymouth's one guy, one former slave, African-American man who went in and fought for freedoms that he potentially wasn't going to have and did it honorably and was recognized for that. I mean, I think it's interesting that they just happened to come across this article in 2019 that mentions him. Mm. And and then you fall down the rabbit hole of trying to research this person. <laughs> and especially, you know, when it is a, a minority or a, a black person from the 18th century, yeah. trying to find those records is really difficult. Yep. Um, we have to commend those women for mm. the research they were able to do. And, I, you know, you, you just wait for those needle in a haystack moments to try and uncover these little bits of information to piece together the story. I think the story of Plymouth Freeman is a fascinating story as we've gone through. It's a it's an incomplete story because of the, of the records, and, and maybe these records will be found uh, as Donna and, and Karen continue their odyssey to discover more about Plymouth. But it really brings to light some of the dichotomies that existed in the American Revolution. Uh, we think about the American Revolution as this revolutionary event, and it really was. It was a world-changing event. But in other ways, it was very much of its time. As I said, the United States, as it became known, was a slave nation. Also, half of the population was not given the right to vote or the right to do much of anything, including owning property, and, and that's women. But over time, because of the ability to change the Constitution and amend it, it really led to a series of other revolutions. On October 22nd, 2023, I moderated a panel of experts on the concept of the unfinished revolution in New York State. My name is Devin Lander. I'm the New York State historian here at the State Museum, and I just want to welcome all of you. As we've been thinking about how to commemorate the American Revolution. It's very clear as historians that the revolution itself was incomplete. This is something that's echoed in the founding legislation that creates a state commission in the state of New York. The legislature finds that New York played an immense role in the lead up and execution of the American Revolution during the period of 1774 to 1783 and was the site of several important battles, skirmishes, and other events that were internationally significant during the Revolutionary Era. The American Revolution itself was imperfect, and many, including women, African Americans, and Native Americans, did not benefit from its ideals of liberty and freedom. However, the struggle to fully realize the ideals of the Revolution has continued over the past 250 years, as is evident in New York's leading role in such revolutionary civil rights movements as the women's rights and abolitionist movements, the Underground Railroad, and the LGTBQ movement. The commemoration of the 250th anniversary of the American Revolution should also be an occasion for recognition of New York's vital role in the revolution itself, as well as the ongoing struggle of marginalized peoples to achieve the ideals of the revolution. So this panel has been assembled to talk about New York's role 
in these kind of continuing revolutions. To my right is Paul Stewart. He is the co-founder with Mary Liz of the Underground Railroad Education Center. Next to Paul is Mary Liz Stewart. She has an active background supporting nonprofit organizations, cultural heritage organizations, and museums. Next to Mary Liz is Ashley Hopkins Benton. She is a senior historian and curator of social history for the State Museum. Final on our panel is Dr. Jennifer Lamack, who is the chief curator of the New York State Museum. So thank you all for joining us, and we will begin our discussion. But let's start with kind of the beginning, with America's founding documents. How have America's founding documents been used to press for social, political, and economic change beyond the founding of the United States itself? That's a, a, a great uh, place to jump in because uh, particularly when we think about uh, the Declaration of Independence, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal uh, and endowed with their by their creator with certain unalienable rights, such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That, although it was used as a theme at that moment of the American Revolution, and I think their intent was to contrast that with the British nobility and to, and to sort of say that the king wasn't any better than they were. But I think implied in what they said there was that, that there were rights that were inherent, that were extended, and you began to see that almost right away reflected in the, the concern of African Americans for asserting rights within the context of the United States. It was a, a very strong theme within the, the movement that we come to call the Underground Railroad and the abolitionist movement. It continued to echo throughout, and of course in today, in this day and age, it is still something that we can use as a touchstone to talk about moving forward to create a more perfect society and to bring those rights or recognize those rights, assert those rights in the context that we see them today that where they need to be asserted and defended. I'll take it a step further with a reference to um, our black abolitionists uh, based in the research that Paul and I have been doing over the years. And we came to recognize that for our black abolitionists, while their primary concern, as with white abolitionists, was for the elimination or abolition of the institution of enslavement in the state and the nation, we noticed that our black abolitionists took uh, some extra steps, which was to engage in a variety of state-based and nationally-based activities. For instance, there was the existence of an organization called the American Council of Colored Laborers that had a home here in New York State. We had the New York State Suffrage Association. Um, we have education also being a focus of attention for many of these black men. In fact, in particular here in the city of Albany, the city school district of Albany was sued because it refused to let black children through its doors. And the legal case was initially resolved in 1851, which only to find out that the application of the legislation applied only to the children of Stephen and Harriet Myers. So city residents took up the cause and continued the pursuit of equity in education here in the city of Albany. The relationship between these kinds of civil rights activities in relationship to those promises laid out in the preamble become very explicitly engaged in by our black abolitionists. 
Um, as I look across uh, the history, especially of the women's rights movement and the LGBTQ plus um, rights movement, uh, what I see is trying to find the ways in which those groups fit into those those documents and, and can place themselves in the history that maybe they were omitted from in the beginning. Um, so in 1848 in Seneca Falls, the Declaration of Sentiments is delivered describing the demands of women. And it starts, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. So they are co-opting that document. And then by the 1970s, um, the Women's Declaration of Independence is rewritten again by Serena Henson and Sidney Pendleton. And again, taking that initial document and reworking it to talk about the ways that women are still left out of society in the 1970s. In the 1870s, um, Francis Minor declares that women aren't left out of the Constitution in voting rights and that they should go try to start voting. And so in 1872, Susan B. Anthony and 15 women from Rochester test that out and are arrested because some say that they are wrong in that, that assertion. Also in arguments for LGBTQ plus rights, they pull little bits and pieces and ways that they see that they fit. So in 2015, in Oberfell versus Hodges, uh, which is the Supreme Court case that eventually allows marriage equality, um, Justice Kennedy in the ruling says that the plaintiffs ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. And he is looking back to the 14th Amendment, finding these these bits that aren't explicitly about the LGBTQ community, but can provide them protections. One of my favorite examples of kind of hearkening back to our founding documents and principles is the New York State suffrage campaign of 1894. They calculated how much women pay in property taxes. And what comes next is the cry that taxation without representation is tyranny. So hearkening back to the Founding Fathers and our original patriots, and they mounted a huge campaign, and they sent out 5,000 petitions across the state, and they were able to get over a half a million signatures. And they presented these signatures very dramatically to the New York State Legislature, and they were voted down. One of our prized artifacts here at the State Museum is the Spirit of 76 suffrage wagon which in 1913 in Long Island, Edna Kearns and Irene Davidson dressed as Minutemen and carrying signs that said, taxation without representation is tyranny, rode the wagon from Long Island to New York City for a parade um, in September 1913. One of their daughters was dressed as Lady Liberty. So the suffragists constantly used this um, revolutionary rhetoric to get their points across. Recently, I attended the 2023 reenactment of the Boston Tea Party. And as part of that commemoration, the reenactors made a point to include that not everyone was included in the meeting of the body of the people where it was decided that the tea would be dumped in the harbor. They actually used the narrator Phyllis Wheatley, who was a woman of color, uh, a poetress, a formerly enslaved person whose book of poetry was actually being delivered on the same ship as um, one of the ships that was holding tea. And the point is made that people like her were not invited to participate, yet they still had to suffer along with the consequences of those decisions made by those that had the right to have a say. 
so when we think about the commemorations of the 250th, looking at a broader context of who was and was not represented, but also the means that were used to get their point across to King George about wanting fair representation and uh, wanting to be able to govern themselves for some in the colony. It also gives us an opportunity to think about the American Revolution as an ongoing revolution, and we're still living in the ripples. And in our case, in the United States and in New York, it's been a series of other struggles and other revolutions, and we're still living that history. Minute in History. This podcast is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and the New York State Museum, with support from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Our producer is Elizabeth Urbanzik. A big thanks to Donna Wassel, Karen Christensen, Paul and Mary Liz Stewart, Dr. Jennifer Lamack, and Ashley Hopkins Benton for taking part in this month's episode. To learn more about our guests and the show, check us out at WAMCpodcasts.org. We're also on X and Instagram as at NY History Minute. I'm Devin Lander. And I'm Lauren Roberts. Until next time, Excelsior! Excelsior.